hi everyone and welcome to the Green Minds podcast. I'm, I'm really excited to be joined by um, Dr. Tom Matthews today. Um, I first came across his work when watching Expedition Everest, which is on National Geographic. And of course, I was just really intrigued. So first of all, hi, Tom, and welcome to the show. Hi, Kapil. Very nice to be here. So thanks very much for having me on. Great. Um, yeah, so I, I, I found the show really fascinating and actually I wanted to find out some more. So um, if you wouldn't mind, would it be possible just to find out a little bit about yourself and, and just your background? Absolutely. So one, I'm very pleased you've seen the documentary. Mm. Um, I know it hasn't, it's, it's been out for a while, but I'm not sure which channels it was shown on. And um, yeah, certainly I enjoyed it. So it's, it's nice, nice to hear that you enjoyed it too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yes, I've, I am now a senior lecturer at King's, um, arrived quite recently in November of 2021. Um, previously was lecturing at Loughborough University and before that was in Liverpool and before that in Ireland. Um, so I completed my PhD in 2013 and the PhD was quite well aligned to what was going on in the National Geographic documentary and that was um, looking at glacier climate interactions, how we can model glacier melt rates as a function of weather data and trying to make that process as efficient as possible. Since the PhD, I've broadened out quite a bit, so I now work on all things extreme weather, but still keep my interest in glacier climate interactions. Sure, great. Um, and so just out of curiosity, I mean, well, I find extreme events fascinating, but what what was the motivator? What drove you to the interest, let's say? Yeah, it's a very good question. So I'd say there are two, two reasons for studying extreme events, at least for me. Um, one, let's start with, I suppose, the most obvious one. One, they matter to people, right? So, you know, everyone, everyone is aware of the impact of extreme weather, at least at some point in their lives. Um, in this country, often it's floods. It can be heat during the summer. Um, but certainly we notice when the atmosphere is in an extreme state. And we're quite lucky in the UK that um, it's, yeah, flooding's a problem, but compared to some other parts of the world, we get off relatively lightly. Um, so one is the enormous impact on people and the kind of, you know, the potential to, to generate some understanding that may uh, make the impact a little less on people. So there's that kind of societal application point of view. The other side is perhaps a bit less obvious and it's the more nerdy side, I suppose. But when the atmosphere is in an extreme state, you can learn some really interesting kind of big picture truths about the way the climate system operates. You know, the atmosphere is really complicated or can look very complicated. The atmospheric motions are very chaotic, trying to spot patterns can be difficult. But things like um, the hottest temperatures on Earth or the hottest, most humid temperatures on Earth, it turns out, for example, they follow the highest sea surface temperatures on Earth. So there is a limit to what we what we can experience in any one place, certainly in the, in the tropics. And that's set by the average or the maximum sea surface temperatures in the tropics. So these quite simple rules can pop out when we look at the most extreme states the atmosphere can, can enter into. Um, so there are two reasons, one societal ap uh, application and, and two, the kind of potential to learn something new about mm. the way the climate system operates. Sure, uh, yeah, absolutely. I think it's really fascinating. And it, I mean, it has, of course, it's becoming more and more prevalent. So it's something that is utmost importance yeah, ab absolutely. So that can, I, can, I suppose I can add that onto the first part of that answer for societal um, application. Indeed, unfortunately, we are seeing an increase in some types of extreme weather. And when I say increase, I mean more frequent extreme weather and some weather types, for example, heavy rainfall events, extreme heat becoming more intense. So yeah. hotter days becoming even hotter, the heavy rainfall days, more rain falling on them. So, yeah, it's not going anywhere as a problem. Would it be possible just to share a bit about the um, expedition Everest? And um, mm. just FYI for the listeners, I, I was able to watch it on Disney, um, Disney Plus, I believe. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I found it really interesting. So how did you get involved with it? And then what was the, I, I guess, your experience of it? Because it, it looked pretty grueling. <laughs> yeah, that's the first really good plug for the for the uh, where the documentary could be found and what. Sure. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, I'll start at the beginning for how I got involved. So back, I think it was in 2018, I submitted a grant application to National Geographic and they often solicit applications for small field work projects so going to um, for example in my case install weather stations in the Himalaya in India that was that was what I applied to do and they support lots of um, endeavors like that so field science 
Um, and also actually for any interested listeners, they also support storytelling projects. So if you're a budding journalist, photographer, um, or of course, um, environmental scientist, then it's worth having a look at the, the grants and National Ge- Geographic offer. Um, you know, you, and it's really good practice for applying for bigger grants if, if you're you know, uh, um, going down that route of a career in, career in science. So I submitted an application to put weather stations up in the Himalaya and that, that that project was getting started and then i was having a back and forth with um my grants officer and um, very a very well prolific scientist actually called aurora elmore who's at national geographic and i think i was asking for an extension for something i was definitely asking for something and i think i got a fairly quick response from that then a follow-up email and i thought oh dear i'm in, in trouble for, you know for perhaps asking for too much instead it wasn't it wasn't a reprimand it was um a request to talk about uh, Everest um, yeah. because they had ambitions to deploy some weather stations on Everest as part of what turned out to be a much, much bigger project. And this bigger project was the, the official name, which I had to get in, is the National Geographic and Rolex Perpetual Planet Everest. <laughs> it's quite <laughs> a mouthful. <laughs> it is, it is. Um, but it was a tremendously ambitious project. So it wasn't just... Um, my involvement was weather stations and the meteorology side, but it was far more than that. So there was a glaciology component, biology component, uh, a mapping component, uh, I think, and a geology component, if I haven't said that already. Um, so it was a huge, huge expedition that went, very international. Um, I think I was the only UK scientist, there were US scientists, lots of Nepali scientists, some other European scientists. Um, so I got asked initially to go across to... Um, and this was very exciting back, back in, and this was also pre-COVID, you know, so travel was um, was certainly freer. Um, and I got asked to go across to Washington DC to help them. That's where the head, HQ is for right. National Geographic, uh, to go and help them plan for the for the upcoming expedition. And yeah, it was a real privilege to be to be part of that. Um, and it was at that point we started making firmer plans for sort of what would what would the weather stations measure? How many would there be? Where would they go? Um, and it was really just really exciting to be to be part of that. You know, we were talking about filling an observational gap um, in the Himalaya. That I think we'll get onto this later, but it's really needed. Um, and it's very difficult to find, um, let's say, a scientific sponsor who's willing to take the risk because you're trying to do something very difficult you know, to put weather stations in places where you might not be able to put them and they might not last. So it, it takes it takes an agency um, or an institute like National Geographic who are as much about trying to do it, the story of how, as much as what comes back in terms of the, the data. I mean, they're very into the data, they're very into the science, but they recognise that, you know, the, the human endeavour is also an interesting part of, of the story. Absolutely. And we learn something about the environment as part of that endeavour. And that's in, you know, very powerful from a, a storytelling perspective. Um, so that's how I how I got involved. And then, yeah, it was a bit of a, a whirlwind then so it was late 2018 late summer in 2018 and i'll fast forward a bit but there was obviously a lot of preparation to do and the first time we left the country for nepal was january 2019 we went for mm-hmm. a pilot expedition a training expedition really in the kumbri valley so we were um practicing climbing with fixed ropes doing some ice climbing right. um meeting the sherpa team who were you know instrumental really um in everything that, that was done, not just in the meteorology team and the work that we did there, but also the other science teams, the, the Sherpa really were, they were fellow scientists, I would regard them as, so they were just extraordinary, we wouldn't be able to do anything without them. So we met them, did some did some, uh, did some practicing ice climbing and other bits. Um, and then we were back, I think late January, um, or early February, and then we were off again um, at the end of March, ready for the expedition proper. Okay. So they're, they're the big bits and, um, yeah, in terms of there was an awful lot of prep though in in between those those kind of marker points so there was preparation physically of mm-hmm. course to, to get the body ready which means just a huge amount of cardiovascular training really you want to be um getting in it depends how intense the stuff you're doing but you'll be doing low intensity and um, you know 10 to 15 or 10 to 20 hours a week of wow. there's a lot of volume that you need to need to get in, just to make sure your body's ready for that day-to-day um yeah. Did that involve high altitude training as well, or just trying to recreate the conditions? I suppose there. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. So, at my old, my old university, Loughborough, they had um, a hyperbaric chamber, or oh, okay, yeah. so you, you, you could it, actually. That's not true. It wasn't a hyperbaric chamber. They had um, a new 
I forget the name of this, but it's a new fancy hotel. Loughborough's famous support for sports. Yeah, absolutely. The hotel they had, you could lower the oxygen content in the room that you were sleeping in to simulate wow. the oxygen. So it's, it's normal pressure, but low oxygen. So the, okay. it's not hyperbaric in, in that sense, but you can reduce the, the concentration of oxygen in the room. Right. And you can go up to Everest Base Camp in terms of in terms of altitude. Mm. Um, we spoke to um, some, some people that are heavily involved in training people for the high altitude climate and there is a trade-off if you if you if you do that if you sleep in a low oxygen environment you deprive your body of oxygen during the training phase then right. yes some adaptation does go on in your cardiovascular system so okay. as far as i understand it it's things like you have more red blood cells sure. produced but the, the decreased quality of sleep means that you can't your muscles can't regenerate so much if you're stressing okay. them with training during the day you're not going to be seeing that recovery and growth um, right. if you're depriving your body of oxygen so the the net the, the short answer is no we didn't actually do any right that things. makes sense yeah <laughs> and instead it was lots for me it was lots of long running uh, long runs baker my um uh, the co-lead of the meteorology team he's based in the us lives mm -hmm. in the Appalachians, so he got to do lots of uphill training lots of cycling uphill but for me it was it was long distance running and, and lots sure. of them yeah great <laughs> yeah well, so I, I mean it helped in the end so you you managed to make it so <laughs> yeah it, it, it's an interesting one because it is about volume it's low intensity too you expect sure. that and for anyone listening is interested who's monitored their, their body doing um mm. doing exercise and wears heart rate monitors and so on and, and has a feeling of, of how their heart rate correlates to how difficult it feels to breathe and etc one really interesting thing that I recall from going to real, you know, really extreme altitudes in Everest is that you're you're breathing really, really hard, and you know you feel like you your heart rate's up in the one sixties, the one seventies. It feels like in terms of effort, it's like running a three k, three thousand meter okay. um, sort of uh, distance. So you, you feel like you're working really quite high intensity. Look at your heart rate, and it's one twenty. Your heart is just not. That's really interesting. Cool. Yeah, it's the wow. that oxygen means that everything. It's greatly slowed down it feels really difficult but yeah your mm. heart's not really pumping hard at all that's the equivalent of walking quite fast yeah you know, absolutely it's, 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 it's quite bizarre it is yeah so it gets completely decoupled that that yeah. uh, the feeling of um physiological stress from uh from exercise intensity is totally decoupled from the heart rate so yeah, yeah that, that was interesting yeah so so in terms of i mean of course the physical challenge of climbing everest but then you also had to be cognizant of the fact that you actually had to do some work up there. So I imagine when people are prepping themselves to go there, they're thinking, okay, let me just climb the thing. <laughs> but let alone having to think, okay, we have to make this sure this goes well and this goes well and that, that added stress. So how was that to kind of Yeah, that's it's a, really, it? it's a really good question because it, it actually started in the preparation. Um, because a lot of a lot of the preparation wasn't just physical, it was also planning for the weather stations sure. so one of the one of the biggest things to try and address was we were putting these weather stations into new places I, you know it's close it's close to the sun the highest station was going to go as close as we could get to the summit um, and we, we know from decades worth of stories about climbing on Everest that the winds can be extraordinarily strong and it's not just the stories we know that from from basic understanding we know approximately um, how strong the winds will be up there but considering the force on a structure grows very quickly with the wind speed or grows very steeply with the wind speed, we really needed to know, um, I get a better estimate of how strong the winds would be up there. Because, of course, you could say just build the weather stations as robust as possible, as strong as possible. But that that's weight. You know, the, the stronger it is, the heavier it is. And everything going up there has to be carried on the backs of people, um, you know, and so... We want it to be as light but as strong as possible. So a big thing was how, how strong are the winds going to be? How cold is it going to be up there? And the irony is, of course, you know, we don't have any data from up there. We need the data to, to try and um, build the stations to collect the data. Right. What we ended up doing was using the output from, it's called reanalysis data. It, it's used, it blends essentially, it's a smart machine that, that, ben, that uh, blends um, observations from elsewhere and the best guess from a weather forecast to try and estimate what the atmospheric state will be at a given time or place. So we, we process a lot of that data to estimate the winds that we would encounter high up on Everest. And that really, and then we were very, very conservative. So we assumed that it was underestimating by quite a bit. Um, right. And then we, so we had design standard to 
to meet that or to you know to be to be good for that and then we had to plan um with the, the weather station manufacturers all the fine details of not just what these weather stations should withstand but also how they should be put up quickly so we had to make sure that they could be deployed without using the normal wrenches and tools that we would have to use without wiring in the sensors which is a painstaking process even if you're doing it in a lab in somewhere you know out, out in the uk in in winter it would be pretty unpleasant because you need to take your gloves off and just this fine um this, you know fine motor control required to screw these wires in so we needed something completely different we couldn't do that and we had to have the, the sensors assembled put them onto the mast and just so your listeners are aware of what an automatic weather station looks like with a simple tripod um it's quite quick to deploy it's got these legs that can be extended or one is telescopic it would be extended these three legs that we we're going to bolt to the, the bedrock and the central mast coming out from from the three legs going up to a height of about two and a half meters and then you have guy wires that are going to attach to that central mast and be bolted into the rock too so it's going to be a really good basis a really good base and then we're going to put the sensors we're going to mount the sensors on the mast there'll be right. cross arms it looks a bit like um building a very small scaffolding arrangement so you have this basic tripod and then you have these scaffold type bits you put onto the tripod and the sensors are mounted on there right so what we had to do was come up with a way of, of sort of assembling that that scaffold set really quickly and without using many tools so we had these big um uh big sort of uh what's the word I'm looking for levers to turn rather than using normal wrenches to tighten nuts so we had right. all these things to try and um to try and overcome to try and figure out to get the weather stations to be one tough enough and two easy enough to deploy quickly and actually three light enough to be carried up um right. as quickly and efficiently as possible so that was that was a planning phase um and then actually when we're out there yeah it was a, a diff you know an, another component to getting getting up the mountain was that at every every stop basically we would be deploying weather stations so we have a we have a weather station one at fort say which is well below base camp and another at base camp and then another at camp two which is above the ice fall um and then another at the south coal and then another one above that the balcony so essentially on this climbing route we're deploying weather stations on the way so it means we're not getting much chance to rest um yeah. and when we're not deploying we're perhaps testing kits and we're practicing for the installations higher up so I don't know how much of a difference it made to our overall physical state going up, but there were oh. yeah, a few times where we thought it would be nice to, to, to lay down for a day <laughs> yeah. and have a nap. But yeah. on the other hand, you know, it, it, it keeps you focused and it stops you from kind of contemplating or worrying too much about what's to come. Because there are some there are some risks on Everest that you can't really you can't reduce to zero. You can reduce them, but you can't reduce them to zero. The risk of avalanche, for example, or ice right. or ice block collapse going through the icefall. So perhaps the busier you are doing other stuff, the less time you're thinking about that, that stuff. It's quite interesting. It got occupies the mind in a, in in a, a strange way. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, yeah. So, um, so I guess uh, when watching the the documentary, so I, you didn't. I suppose you made it up to the balcony point. That was where you could install the um, weather system. Was it a little bit frustrating? Because I know that there was a high footfall on that particular but was it a little bit frustrating that you weren't able to install the at the at right of the peak I, I mean it's near enough but <laughs> yeah no that's, that's a very very fair question because it certainly comes out in, in the documentary is that you know kind of the real drama of the of, the, of that of that night because it is a night and just so your listeners are, are aware we we left the highest camp um and I think around 11 p.m um mm -hmm. so you're climbing through the night uh, to try and well get to the summit or close to the summit in the morning um, and then and then descend before it gets too warm um, uh, late afternoon the next day so yeah we left in the night and we knew it was a busy a busy year as you said there was high footfall on Everest that year I'm not sure where it sits in terms of the overall number of climbers compared to other recent years um, but it, it certainly wasn't quiet mm. but then the reason why it was so busy that night was interestingly enough because of the weather that year or that season so you can only really summit everest it's not true you can summit everest in the winter but it's very difficult right. it's very dangerous because the winds up there can be probably strong enough to literally blow climbers off the mountain so yeah. you, you have to you have to really be very lucky with the weather to get up in the winter 
Um, in the monsoon, there's so much snow around. It has been climbed during the monsoon. The monsoon is our summer period. Um, so uh, approximately June, June to August, June, September. Um, there's so much snow around in that period, even though it's, it's warm and the winds are light. Um, so there's a bit more, and interestingly enough, the amount of oxygen that's in the summit follows the temperature. Okay. Um, so there's actually more oxygen during the monsoon to, to climb and so it's warmer, less wind, more oxygen. There's so much snow around the avalanche risk is really high. In winter, very cold, potentially very strong winds, so very difficult to climb. So that leaves us with the spring and the autumn. They're the two, they're the two um, climbing windows. And the autumn, well, that one, that window's a bit more tricky because you've got all that snow from the monsoon perhaps still sitting there. And also, if you're late, the, the bad weather's coming. Right? So you're heading into you're heading into the winter. Um, so the spring, for these reasons, the spring ends up being the most popular time to climb. And that year, the weather during the spring wasn't great. So essentially what dictates the timing of when people will try and climb to the summit and go to those upper really exposed slopes is the wind. And it's the, of course, it's the forecast for the wind that people are responding to. Um, and during that season, there weren't many days when the winds were, were slow enough to be safe to climb on the upper slopes right um so what that meant was people were funneled into you know, just a, a few days actually i think there were only two windows um each two or three days long um and the first window not everyone went so we were in that second window um or actually i should say during that first window not many went so a lot an awful lot were, were funneled into that second window right so we were aware of this as we went up as we we're going through the ice fall you see this in the documentary we have to queue for a long time in the ice fall and that was a concern you know True. during earlier rotations we'd gone up there no queuing at all this was a big change in the summit push and then heading out towards the summit on that on that fateful night um looking up you could just see this long train of headlights stretching into the into the night it's an incredible sight i mean it's really surreal because you don't you almost they almost look like they're floating up ahead you can't believe what you're seeing there's this long train of, of climbers hundreds of climbers and sherpa um up ahead and we were moving okay for a couple of hours coming out of camp four but then we hit the back of this queue and we knew that we were in trouble then because you just you have you can't go round. The, the climbers because there's only there's actually only one line and at least in a lot of places one one fixed line one rope uh, to attach yourself okay. to climb up and you can of course temporarily unclip and overtake climbers but we had a big team that we were and we all had to be together because we all have different bits the weather stations um weather station sorry and then all different all have different bits of the ice core equipment there's also going to be an ice core tape we have to stay together um, and so, you know, with that in mind, we realised that this queue and this, this lack of progress was was going to be an issue, was an issue. And by the time we got to the balcony, which is about halfway between Camp 4 and the summit, it's 400 metres or so below the summit, um, we had to make a difficult decision. You know, either we, we go higher um, and risk one on the weather, on the science side, not having enough time, wherever we, wherever we um, end up settling on, whatever site that's higher, not having enough time to deploy the weather station because we're limited by oxygen ultimately yeah. um and also of course just the weather and and daylight um daylight to a lesser extent but certainly the oxygen is a huge constraint on what we can do so we risk not being able to um not being able to get the weather station deployed if we go higher we don't know how long it's going to take to get to the next you know uh, suitable spot we also of course risk our safety and the safety of the, the whole sherpa team they're having to move much slower because you're moving slow, you're feeling the cold, everyone's at much higher risk of frostbite. Right. Um, so it was quite an easy decision for our lead Sherpa, who's very experienced. Um, sure. So he made the call and there was universal agreement that it was the, the right thing to do. Yes. Disappointed in the sense that when it's taken so much to go so far and you're so close to, you know, going as far as you ever could go, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's, of course, a bit frustrating. But... Mm considering how difficult the challenge was to get weather you know to get weather data from so high up yeah fact, we'd already had the south coal station stores that was at eight thousand meters and we did manage to we realized we had a spot where this you know this station could be installed it was going to was going to be able to collect new data tremendously satisfying actually. absolutely 
you know it's a case of I mean, we all encounter it i think in other things that we do but learning to you know have perspective on, mm. on the, the bigger picture you know to so recognize I mean, what we have there um is 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 really valuable and yeah. um and if we'd have been able to if someone had offered that you know before we'd set off would we have taken it i think so actually yeah. um but of course looking up at the summit ridge from the balcony it seems so close yeah absolutely <laughs> tantalizingly close yeah, right <laughs> yeah absolutely i think um given the circumstances of right core for sure and it's just uh I, I'm sure, as we're going to touch upon later, that's going to provide so many valuable insights mm -hmm. going forward. Um, so, I guess we wanted to touch upon. So, how uh, you, you've got an interest, of course, in mountains, glaciers, one. So, um, how how quickly is climate change occurring in the highest regions? So, what what's our mm -hmm. understanding of that currently? So, the the quick answer is faster than elsewhere, generally. Um, it's a it's a well known and fairly well studied phenomena that the higher you go in the atmosphere in the in the troposphere at least that's the the, the lowest part of the atmosphere that all of our weather takes place in. Um, Aeroplanes typically fly at the top of the troposphere, so it's just in the stratosphere. So towards the top of the troposphere, as you go higher in the troposphere, generally temperatures are are, are going up quicker than they're going up closer to the ground. Okay. So that's a well known phenomenon, and of course that does have impacts on the environment in mountains at, at altitude so um, that temperature change directly sort of has impact on the extent of snow and ice um, but also tremendously affects the ecology of, of mountain regions so they're changing quickly but precisely how quickly well that's difficult to know because we don't actually have many weather stations or much weather data from these high mountain environments um, and it's, it is it can be quite complex because yeah, the big picture um, as to what's going on through the free atmosphere is one thing, but what's going on very close to the ground in the, on the, on the, in the mountains is perhaps a different thing. Because you can imagine that it's just picture what, what could be happening underneath or over um, a given mountain surface. As the snow and ice retreats and we have bare rock exposed, well, that's going to have a, you know, its own impact on the, the local air temperature. And you, you would expect in that scenario the local air temperature response to be amplified further right because that's snow and ice that's sitting underneath or that's covering the surface it's reflecting a lot of sunlight it can't ever go above zero degrees it just melts faster the more the more sunlight that lands on it you remove that snow and ice you expose bare rock underneath absorbs a lot more sunlight and that, that surface will heat up uh, well above zero potentially and that will that will be passed on to the atmosphere so you do need those on the ground measurements of air temperature on the ground being weather stations in the mountains to actually monitor what's going on there's a limit to what we can what we can get from things like you know satellites that are that, that are measuring we do need those on the ground data and they're incredibly rare so weather stations particularly in the high mountains if you go for example over six thousand meters in the himalaya there's almost nothing, literally a handful of applications. Okay. And considering the summit of Everest is almost 9,000 meters, that's a lot of a lot of altitude, a lot of snow and ice that's um, that, that's, that's really not had any measurements um, of the weather made over or near it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I guess um, when, when when watching it, it referred to how the Himalayas are significant. So uh, why, I guess, why are the Himalayas so significant when mm. looking at climate change? Because they, it, of course, it seems to have quite a dramatic impact on communities. Mm. And, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, it's a, it's a very good question. It's you know, always one we should be asking ourselves up front when we set out on these very um, ambitious expeditions, you know, is ultimately what's the point? Because um, mm. there are the big costs involved, big risks involved. So the societal need has to be you know, really at the, the forefront of, of that thinking. And the Himalayas are indeed exceptionally important. I mean, I'm as someone who works more on the snow and ice side, that's the way I would naturally lean when answering this question. Um, but there is a tremendous amount of ice stored in glaciers in the Himalaya. Well, high mountain Asia, we can broaden, when I, we can use that term, that broadens out rather than just the Himalayas, we're talking about the Karakoram, the Pamir ranges, um, a huge amount of snow and ice stored there sure. and there are literally 
hundreds of millions or over a billion actually people living downstream of these of these water towers they're sometimes yeah. referred to they're referred to as water towers because they are well, one it's it's at because these are um, topographic features a tower above the, the lowlands downstream and two they um they store reliably water in the form of snow and ice and okay. um, so they get more and this is quite a simple idea but quite i think quite profound if you if you think of it this way they get more precipitation through snow and rain um, than the lowlands or sorry no i should rephrase that it's sort of lowlands become relevant in a second but they get more precipitation um, then evaporates back to the atmosphere so they're net stores of water right and they pass that water downstream okay. where there is a deficit so where um, evaporation exceeds precipitation so the lowlands where a lot of people are living um, experience uh, a water deficit if you just think simply of that precipitation evaporation the right. mountains the water towers have a surplus there's more precipitation than evaporation so they act as these um, sources of water for communities downstream and when we have uh, that precipitation stored in snow and ice in particular in, in glaciers we have a really special type of water store because what happens during really hot well, hot and dry weather if you don't have water being stored in glaciers then th there's no precipitation to fall so drought can follow quite quickly when you have glaciers storing um, water in the form of ice, when it's hot and dry, water is still flowing downstream. In fact, more water is flowing downstream because those glaciers are melting quickly. So it's releasing water. So they're tremendous buffers against, against drought. Um, and in, um, a sort of a simpler summary is that they really influence the seasonal flow of waters in these enormous rivers this, the influence or supply fresh water to over a billion people. This is just looking at the Himalayan regions. We've got the Ganges, Brahmaputra, and the Indus, the two right. biggest sort of um, drainage systems in high mountain Asia. We collectively have about a billion people living in those in those catchments. Right. So what happens to those water towers is profoundly important to the freshwater security of the more than one billion people living downstream. Yeah, that's yeah. So, well, originally I am from India, so that's fair. And I mean, at the best of times nowadays, there's a lot of regions within northern India which are they're having difficulties. And uh, I mean, mm. if that's added into the mix as well, it's just uh, it's quite frightening, really. So, well, absolutely. And one, I think it's the Indus really that worries me, and what worries a lot of other. Um, researchers that work in this area because the Indus, so that drains mainly through Pakistan, um, the Indus gets you know the vast majority of its water from snow and ice melt. Mm -hmm. The that it's monsoon rain that, that feeds a lot of the um, the discharge through those through those river systems, but the Indus, it's snow and ice melt, it's a very direct connection to the, the snow and ice stored in the mountains. Um, mm -hmm. So changes to the snow and ice stored will propagate um, in a profound way to the flow of the Indus. So, I mean, it's an issue across high mountain ages, an issue across our mountain ranges worldwide, but it's a particularly pertinent pressing issue in, in sure. the Indus. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and it's really important just to draw more attention because I guess sometimes, mm -hmm. sometimes I feel people don't see the tangible impacts and they don't know how to relate it. And it's something that they push down further down the line, whereas it's it's going to have quite a profound impact. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. And again, big, big picture thinking, and this goes beyond just the water towers. You think where humanity has chosen to put its huge settlements, where we've settled, has reflected an abundance of the resources that we need. And fundamental there is water. And when we recognize that the, the location of those abundant water supplies is controlled by the climate and we then appreciate that the climate's changing you know there is there, there are big thing very big things at stake um and i think that's that's it's important to keep that big picture perspective you know to recognize that we are very very tightly coupled to the climate Absolutely. or rather our, our 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 civilization if you like is very very tightly coupled where we've decided to build these big settlements very very coupled to reliable supply of the resources that we need which in turn is very tightly coupled so I think um, so in terms of now that the 
because another piece was that the weather stations were also installed almost as a, a flood prevention, uh, flood defense, almost kind of to alert the community. So how how is that? Um, have you seen, has there been beneficial results seen as a consequence of um, installing them and helping or just uh, preparing the communities? Yes, yeah, good, good question. So these weather stations were, there ought to be two kind of strands to their, to their uh, benefits. Um, the first was from a, you know, kind of a local perspective. It was more than just flood forecasting. It was also um, helping secure the safety of those involved in high mountaineering in the Himalayas. So the Sherpa and high altitude workers that are very, very exposed when on the upper slopes of Everest. Um, you know, because it, it may seem like a, um, a very niche form of employment to listeners here, but in the in the Kumbu, um, to the Nepalese from the Nepalese side there, but a, a lot of the, um, the villages are involved in climbing Everest. You know, the, they they empty during the or, or come a lot closer to being empty during the main climbing seasons. Is um, the Sherpa head up to uh, to help help clients climb Everest and help keep them safe. Um, and they are tremendously exposed when on the upper slopes okay. to the weather, to uh, changes in the weather. And anyone who's seen the 1990, uh, the film about the 1996 film, so Everest, I think it's called. Um, what's his name? Is it Jake Gyllenhaal? I'm terrible with celebrities. Is that someone? I think it is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I haven't watched it myself. <laughs> yeah. For anyone who's watched it, that's about the a really bad storm here in 1996 that gave people, and there was a little warning about the, the impending storm, and, me, and many died um, from that. Um, and one of the one of the problems with weather forecasts on Everest is that no one knows how well the forecast, at least until now, how well the forecasts perform, because there are no ground truth uh, observations or no observations of ground truth weather forecasts and check them against. Um, so one aim of the expedition or the deployment of weather stations was to provide those ground truthing observations so that we can compare the weather forecast to those observations and see how well they do, how trustworthy they are, and what corrections should perhaps be applied to make them more reliable. So that's one thing that we've been able to do already. And we can see that the weather forecast, depending on which one you use, but they're actually very good for the wind. Outside, we haven't really been able to check during spring because um, the timing when the weather stages are deployed, but outside of the spring, the, the forecasts of very of strong winds have been very, very good, exceptionally good. So that's really important for helping secure people's safety up on the sure. mountains. It means that when the forecast says it's going to be strong winds, you you don't go. You know, they're, it, it, they're, they're right. Um, and the, the more we can um, sort of establish the strengths and weaknesses of those forecasts, the more we can fine tune um, or identify suitable climbing windows that could make everything a bit safer up there. Because it, it could mean that we could be more confident. Now, it's a difficult trade-off, but we could be you could identify more confidence marginal climbing windows. Okay. So times before when perhaps the conservative approach would have been to avoid climbing because the winds, you know, are let's say five, six, ten meters per second below the perhaps a, a, um, an absolute upper threshold that some might want to, you know, stay away out of caution because I'm not sure quite how reliable the forecast is. Well, perhaps that now could be a climbable day. It spreads the climbs out. And therefore perhaps may make the whole thing a bit safer but there's lots of research left to do um, on that side in general monitoring and these high mountain catchments does help protect against flood risk um because you know precipitation is again something that, that varies um quite substantially during the mount uh, across across the mountains um so the more observations we have of precipitation falling the better we can understand that those topographic influences and how they ultimately determine the amount of precipitation that falls which in turn helps us understand um, flood risk and I mean actually just measuring the discharge of rivers so again using remote um, observational bits of kit here um, can provide very important early warning of floods too so we saw for example um, in India during so northern India in the Himalaya in the winter of 2021, I think it was late winter, there's that devastating flood in Uttarakhand um, in the north where there was a huge rockfall that triggered an enormous flood, an enormous, uh, enormous flood that killed many people. It was all over the internet. I think people may have, you know, may have seen that at the time. Simply monitoring upstream 
um, that can provide some critical some critical um, early warning to help people get out of the way if you like there's a lot of this going on across well there's not enough but there's certainly is some of this going on across high mountain asia um, monitoring or installing early warning monitoring systems in lakes that are perched precariously high above um, villages downstream so glacial lakes um, that are growing in number and size as glaciers retreat and they have the potential to drain catastrophically so early monitoring of the water levels in those lakes can again provide early warning they might be thinking how is this connected to the weather stations well what we're really interested in what i'm certainly very interested in is increasing um, monitoring networks across high mountain asia that includes weather it includes river discharge um, and the weather data would be fed into flood forecasting models to give early warning of what's coming um, and then the actual just monitoring of river discharge can be you know shorter term kind of um, in the same way that you know you can detect tsunami approaching or that you can you can model tsunami approaching um, based on seismic observations and, and understanding of how that works same can be done with uh, with river discharge so or just you know monitoring a flood wave approaching giving some early warning so it's all part of an overall effort to increase um increase monitoring networks in high mountain asia okay great um it's it's been a bit of time now since um of course the expedition was completed so i mean what has what have been your key learnings because i know that the that a lot of the data that mm. were being collected and the a lot of the the, or the weather systems, let's say, the infrastructure mm. that's been put in place that will continuously give data now for the, mm. the coming years. So what have been the kind of key takeaways really from... Um, yeah, so another another uh, good question. So the weather stations have been operating now for a few years, so we've been able to get some some insight into what's going on up there. And I suppose one of the most interesting things, and perhaps one of the most concerning things, is that we see quite a lot of melt going on up high already. And when I say up high, I mean 8,000 metres, which is our highest weather station that is equipped with all the sensors required to simulate, estimate the surface energy balance, the amount of energy that's available to the surface to either evaporate water um, or if there's if there's snow and ice there to melt the snow and ice. So we can we can model the melt rate that we would expect to occur up there. Um, so that's at the South Pole, 8,000 metres. And remember, that's a really, it's a really high point. It's above most of the, the snow and ice on Earth, for sure. There's only 14 peaks that go above 18, go above 8,000 metres. Um, and so we're at the top, if you like. If you think of that one, that's kind of the, the top of the, of the snow and ice stores across high mountain Asia, that 8,000 metre point. Yes, there is some snow and ice above that on Everest, but uh, in terms of um, being representative of high mountain Asia, uh, uh, as a whole um, there's there's essentially nothing above 8,000 meters um, so what we see at 8,000 meters yeah, is really interesting um, you see the sunlight is incredibly intense it may be one of the sunniest spots on earth I mean there aren't records kept as far as I'm aware for um, you know, total kilowatt hours over a year for example um, there are records for number of sunshine hours but not for total solar energy that's received at the surface of the earth but sure. in comparing with some other um candidate locations it looks like the south coal on everest 8,000 meters is one of the sunniest spots on earth and that mm. that really intense sunshine um heats the surface very effectively and when that's snow and ice what happens is it brings it up to the melting point brings it up to zero degrees even though the air temperature doesn't get close to zero i think the warmest we've seen at the south coal it's hard to say for sure because the temperature measurement gets contaminated a bit by the strong sunshine. We have radiation shields for the temperature sensors, but they heat up, they still heat up in the sunlight. If the wind is not, if the wind is very light and the solar load is very high, then we still get some contamination in the temperature measurement. It's hard to say what the, the highest temperature really is up there, but even with that contamination, it doesn't go above zero degrees. We're talking about so minus between minus ten and minus five, if I recall correctly. But that sunshine is so strong that it's heating, heating the snow and ice, getting it to the melting point, and actually driving some melting up there at eight thousand meters, despite the fact that the air temperatures are well below freezing. And the same will be going on. We see the same at Camp Two, which is six thousand four hundred meters. That's in the accumulation basin of the Kumbu Glacier. 
Um, and that's representative, it's a representative altitude of accumulation basins across the, mm -hmm. certainly in the central Himalaya and perhaps uh, perhaps more widely across other parts of high mountain Asia. And so we see melt already occurring there. And why that's interesting is because the models that we currently use for um, projecting future glacier extent wouldn't expect or wouldn't model any melt occurring there. They would, right. you would um, treat that as a, a place that's just experiencing accumulation and no no melt Now, whether or not that water that's generated that melt water that's generated is running off so actually joining the river systems is another question because if it's snow what will happen is it will tend to refreeze in the snowpack um, interestingly we see some evidence of refreezing from other scientists that worked on the Kumbu or substantial refreezing from other scientists that worked on the Kumbu that have found the ice temperature is quite a bit warmer than the average air temperature you think, well, how can that happen? It happens because the water refreezes, it heats the surrounding ice. So we have this independent sort of verification that's done Duncan Quincy and his group at Leeds that have found um, that the ice temperatures are surprisingly warm. And that would fit with solar radiation driving quite a bit of melt and that yeah. water then refreezing. Um, so that's interesting. And what we've also found, and another consequence of that, is that the melt rate high up on Everest is incredibly sensitive to how reflective the surface is. Okay. So if you were to, for example, swap snow for ice and snow, fresh snow has a, has a typical albedo about 0.8, which means it reflects about 80% of the sunshine that lands on, on the surface. The ice that we measured or the albedo of the ice we measured on Everest was about 0.4. So yeah. it's reflecting 40% of the solar radiation that lands on and if you swap snow for ice, the amount of melt that we see at 8,000 metres increases by something like a factor of 20. Yeah. So it's incredibly sensitive. Yeah. Um, and, it, it is, and what can happen is you can get this slow drip of uh, increasing temperatures leading to a little bit more sublimation. Sublimation is it's like a evaporation when you go from water to, uh, to water vapour. Sublimation is when you go from a frozen state to, um, to water vapour. So you can lose snow and ice by sublimating. You can have this, this slow drip of sublimation increasing with time as temperatures rise. Okay. And if that's not compensated for by increased snowfall, then it will thin high altitude snowpacks. Right. And then what can happen is once you get, once you remove the snow and it's then just ice exposed, suddenly large scale melting can kick in and, and rapidly uh, remove decades worth of accumulation. The system is so a tipping point essentially can can be reached up there by stripping snow and replacing it with ice that really strong sunlight then triggers large scale melting so rapid uh, thinning of high altitude of glaciers at high, alt high altitude in the Himalaya wow. possible and we think we've seen some evidence of that the ice core team have found some very old ice exposed at the south coal um, wow. and, and the mechanism we've just described is consistent with explaining that phenomenon. Okay. Um, so yeah it's it's equally fascinating as well as frightening um yes it is but i suppose the better prepared we are yeah. to know what's coming the the better we can plan it, it's better to be informed yeah. about this so yeah it's not it, and the thing is it's still early days uh, finding out quite quite what this means in aggregate you know we need to do we need to look um we need to develop models ultimately that are capable of capturing these these processes, but are also parsimonious or simple enough to run at large scale, um, and, and then see what the net effect is. Um, so, yeah, th thank you for your time, Tom, today, and uh, I really, I really appreciate just you taking the time and just informing us of um, the fascinating work that you've done. It's been really insightful, a little bit frightening, but of course, it's, it's just something that we. We need to be more aware of and um and what we always like to do is just at the end just um find out from our guests of maybe a book or perhaps a, a documentary that you might you might recommend yeah well firstly thanks for having me on i know i've uh you go start on everest i waffle for a, a long time but it's, it's a pleasure to talk about these things um but in terms of yeah recommendation well i would say I didn't like the way it was written that much, but I love the concept. I think it's very powerful um, and important. Nicholas Taleb's The Black Swan, I would, yeah. I would, I would recommend. Um, as alluded to the beginning, I work on extreme events too. And um, The Black Swan 
book is very relevant in that space and it's something that I think is all the more relevant now we've we're at the tail end I hope of living through a pandemic and pandemics are they're not black swans but they exhibit this this heavy tail behavior um, where and, and to summarize essentially this is what extreme weather events also exhibit is that conditions a very long way from anything we've seen before are not as unlikely as you might expect and when we go out the envelope of our, of our lived experience then we can get stressed or pressured in profound ways and we want to try and be prepared for that as much as possible and i think that's why i see research really playing a big role in communication that research playing a big role to identify what surprises can be in store or may be in store and how best to prepare for them so we've talked a lot about glaciers and 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 uh, water availability but ultimately this and the black swan is perhaps a little bit more relevant for extreme weather so it's a really nice book in terms of the concept it's quite widely um it's quite widely known about and i recommend if it was interested in extreme weather read it from read the book and think it think of it from that way think of Absolutely. extreme floods perhaps being an evidence of black swan type behavior yeah I, i've read it myself and okay. i can yeah yeah attest to the fact that it's it's a fantastic book it's <laughs> great um yeah th thanks again tom and um yeah i really appreciate your time you're very welcome thank you